0: Hello everybody and welcome to the Going Up Cast, your weekly feel good podcast for this week. We read more chapters of a famous water based book, I talk about a brand new D&D podcast, I talk about the adventures of moving house, and a movie that you should all check out. That's right. This week we talk about, well, it's not exactly a new D&D podcast, but it's new to me, damn it, and it's called Dungeons and Daddies and we'll get into that a little bit later on. I share uh, what my new apartment is going to look like. Um, in and, and some pretty grand details I talk about Palm Springs a new romantic comedy movie found on Hulu and we read three new chapters of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea holy crap, this week has been has been busy let me tell you, um, frantic packing uh, and, and indeed today um, I'm going to be packing up all of my non-essential things, so like my Playstation and all of my kitchen equipment and all the bathroom stuff that I don't absolutely need over the next couple of days will get packed away all my booze has already been packed away um so that's that's a thing that i'm dealing with uh and it's 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 nice to be able to get this done uh so i can start unpacking and setting up my new my new digs it will be it'll be very nice but that's kind of where i'm at on my end outside of that i'm doing i'm doing okay uh world's still exploding so i hope you're all doing well And uh, before we get into this incredibly long episode of the Going Upcast, just real quick at the top, if you enjoy the Going Upcast and wish to support the Going Upcast, you can go to patreon.com forward slash goingupcast, where you can become a $5 patron and get access to the monthly live streams, the next one of which will be streamed from my new place. Um, So I'll be able to show you guys uh, little bits of that. And you get access to the Pokemon Nuzlocke run, uh, which a new episode will go up sometime this week hopefully that's my plan today is to render out the uh, the next episode um yeah it's things are things are feeling feeling pretty good over here so i hope you're all doing well let us get into the fuffin podcast the fuffin podcast that's this one this one right here. chapter 18 four thousand things under the pacific by the next morning, November 18th, I was fully recovered from my exhaustion of the day before and I climbed onto the platform just as the Nautilus' chief officer was producing his daily phrase. It occurred to me that these words either referred to the state of the sea or that they meant there's nothing in sight. And the truth, the ocean was deserted, not a sail on the horizon. The tips of Crespo Island had disappeared during the night. The sea, absorbing every color of the prism except its blue rays, reflected the latter in every direction, sporting a wonderful indigo tint. "'The undulating waves irregularly took on the appearance of watered silk with wide strips. "'I was marveling at this magnificent ocean view when Captain Nemo appeared. "'He didn't seem to notice my presence,' began a series of astronomical observations. "'Then his observation, operations finished. "'He went and leaned his elbows on the beacon housing, his eyes straying over the surface of the ocean. "'Meanwhile, some, of the, some twenty of the Nautilus's soldiers, all energetic, well-built built fellows, climbed onto the platform.' They had come to pull up the nets left in our wake during the night these seamen obviously belonged to different nationalities although indications of european physical traits could be seen in all of them if i'm not mistaken i recognized some irishmen some frenchmen a few slavs and a native of either greece or crete even so these men were frugal of speech and used among themselves only that bizarre dialect whose origins i couldn't even guess so i had to give up any notions of questioning them i also think it's a clever narrative tool from Jules Verne so he doesn't have to come up with 20 fucking names and personalities of people by making them just like this mindless drone of folks. Anyway, the Nets were hauled on board. They were a breed of trawl resembling those used off the Normandy coast, huge pouches held half open by a floating pole and a chain laced through the lower meshes. Trailing this way from these Iron Glove makers, the resulting receptacles scoured the ocean floor and collected every marine exhibit in their path. That's horribly destructive. That day they gathered up some unusual specimens from these fish-filled waterways, anglerfish whose comical movements qualified them uh, for the epithet clowns. Why, they were so fucking weird-looking. Black, comersome anglers equipped with their antennas, undulating triggerfish encircled by little red bands, bloated puffers whose venom was extremely insidious, some olive-hued snipe snipefish covered in silver scales, and countless fish, whose electric heating power equals that of the electric eel and the electric ray, scaly featherbacks with brown crosswise bands, greenish codfish, several varieties of gobies, etc., finally some fish of larger proportions, a one-meter jack with a prominent head, several fine bonito from the genus Scoombird decked out in the colors of blue and silver, and three magnificent tuna whose high speeds couldn't save them from our trawl. I estimate that this cast of net brought in more than a thousand pounds of fish. It was a fine catch, but not surprising. In essence, these nets stayed in our wake for several hours, incarcerating an entire aquatic world in prisons made of thread. So we were never lacking provisions of the highest quality, which the Nautilus's speed and the lure of its electric light could replenish continuously. These various exhibits from the sea were immediately lowered down the hatch and, yeah, in the direction of the storage lockers, soon to be eaten, some to be eaten fresh, others to be preserved. After its fishing was finished and its air supply renewed, I thought the Nautilus would resume its underwater excursion and I was getting ready to return to my stateroom when Captain had turned to me and said without further preamble, Look at this ocean, Professor. Does it not have the actual gift of life? Doesn't it experience both anger and affection? Last evening I went to sleep just as we did. Oh, it went to sleep just as we did. And there it is, waking up after a peaceful night. No hellos or good mornings for this gem." Who would have thought this eccentric individual was simply continuing a conversation we had already started? See, he went on, it's waking up under the sun's caresses. It's going to relive
1: its daily existence. Uh, yeah. What a fascinating field of study lies in watching the play of its organisms. Its own, it, it owns a pulse and arteries. It has spasms. And I side with a scholarly Commander Maori, who discovered that it has a circulation as real as the circulation of blood
0: in animals. I'm sure Captain Nemo expected no replies from me, and it seemed pointless to pitch in with an, Ah, yes, exactly, or, How right you are! Rather, he was simply talking to himself with long pauses between sentences. He was meditating out loud. Uh, Yes, he said. The ocean owns a a genuine circulation, and and to start it going,
1: the creator of all things, has only to increase its heat, salt, and microscopic animal life. In essence, heat will create the different intensities that leads to currents and countercurrents. Evaporation which is nile which is nil
0: in the high Arctic regions and very active in equatorial zones brings about a constant interchange of tropical and polar waters. What's more,
1: I've detected those falling and rising currents that make up the oceans through breathing. I've seen a molecule of salt water heat up at the surface. Sink into the depths, reach a maximum density, a negative2 degrees centigrade, then cool off, grow lighter, and rise again. As the poles at the poles, you'll see the consequence of this phenomenon. Through this law of far-seeing nature, you'll understand why water can freeze only at the surface.
0: As the captain was finishing his sentence, I said to myself, "The pole, is this brazen individual claiming he'll take us even to that location?" Meanwhile, the captain fell silent and started or stared. At the he had studied so thoroughly and unceasingly. Then going on, Salts! He said, Jesus Christ. Fill the sea with considerable quantities, professor. And if you remove all its dissolved saline content, you'll create a mass measuring 4.5 million cubic leagues, which if it were to spread over all the globe, would form a layer more than 10 meters high. And don't think that the presence of these salts is due merely to some whim of nature. No, they make ocean water less open to evaporation, prevent winds from carrying off excessive amounts of steam, which, when condensing, would submerge the temperate zones. Salt plays a leading role, the role of stabilizer for a general ecology of the globe. Captain Mo stopped, straightened up, took a few steps along the platform, returned to me. As for those billions of tiny animals, he went on, those infusoria that live by the millions in one droplet of water, eight hundred thousand of which are needed to weigh one milligram. Their role is no less important. They absorb the marine salts, they assimilate the solid elements in the water, and since they create coral and matropores, they are true builders of limestone continents. And so, after they finish depriving a water drop of its mineral nutrients, The droplet gets lighter, rises to the surface, there absorbs more salts left behind, through evaporation, gets heavier, sinks again, brings those tiny animals new elements to absorb. The outcome,
1: a double current, rising and falling, constant movement, constant life. More intense than on land, more abundant, more infinite, such life blooms in every part of this ocean. An element fatal to man, they say, but vital to
0: myriads of animals, and to me. When Captain Nemo spoke in this way, he was transfigured, and he filled me with extraordinary excitement. There, he added, out out there lies their true existence. I can imagine the founding nautical
1: towns, clusters of underwater hustles that, like the Nautilus, would return to the surface of the sea to breathe each morning. Free towns, if ever there were, independent cities. Then again, who knows whether some tyrant... Captain Nemo finished his sentence with a vehement
0: gesture. Then, addressing me directly, as if to drive away an ugly thought, "Professor Al Knox," he asked me, "Do you know the depth of the ocean floor?" In the least, Captain, I know what the major soundings tell us. Could you quote them to me, so I can double-check them as the need arises? Hold on, Mariana's Trench. There we go. <laughs> yeah, just think for a second. Here, or, or, here, I replied. I'll have a few of them that stick to my memory, if I'm not mistaken. An average depth of 8... 80, 80... Yep. 8200 meters was found in the North Atlantic, and 2500 meters in the Mediterranean. The most remarkable soundings were taken in the South Atlantic, near the 35th parallel. And they gave 12,000 meters, 14,091 meters, and 15,149 meters. All in all, it's estimated that at the sea bottom were, uh, were made level, the average depth would be about 7 kilometers. "'Well, Professor,' Captain Nemo replied, "'we'll show you better than that, I hope. "'As for the average depth of this part of the Pacific, "'I'll inform you that it is a mere 4,000 meters.' "'This Captain Nemo. Uh, this said, Captain Nemo headed to the hatch and disappeared down a ladder. "'I followed him and went back to the main lounge. "'The propeller was instantly set into motion, "'and the log gave our speed as 20 miles per hour. "'Over the ensuing days and weeks, Captain Nemo was very frugal with his visits.' I saw him only at rare intervals. His chief officer regularly fixed the position I reported I found reported on the chart, and in such a way I could exactly plot the Nautilus's course. council and Land spent several long hours with me. council had told his friend about the wonders of our undersea stroll the and the kidney was very sorry he hadn't gone along. But I hoped an opportunity would arise for a visit uh for the floor for, for, for deep too. But I hoped an opportunity would arise for a visit to the forests of Oceania. There we go. Almost every day, the panels in the lounge were open for some hours, and our eyes never tired probing the mysteries of our underwater world. I would absolutely just fucking post up there with, like, some whiskey and a sandwich every goddamn day, and then just, like, watch the ocean stroll by. That sounds amazing. The Nautilus' general heading was southwest, because it would always be different. You know? That's the thing. You think you'd get bored staring at an open expanse of water, but if you have, like, visibility for, like, several hundred feet on either side of the submarine, just looking at shit perfectly safe fuck yes i'd be all over that well i say perfectly safe we'll find out if uh, if the nautilus will remain perfectly safe uh for for some time where was i uh it was heading southeast and it stayed at a depth between 100 and 150 meters however for lord knows what whim one day it did a diagonal dive by means of its slanting fins, reaching strata located 2,000 meters underwater the thermometer indicated a temperature of Four of four point twenty five degrees centigrade, which at this depth seemed to be a temperature common uh, to all latitudes. On November twenty sixth at three o'clock in the morning, the nautilus cleared the Tropic of Cancer at longitude one hundred and seventy two degrees. On the twenty seventh, it passed uh, inside of the Hawaiian Islands, where the famous Captain Cook met his death on February fourteenth, seventeen seventy nine. By then, we had fared. 4860 leagues from our starting point when i arrived on the platform that morning i saw the island of hawaii two miles to leeward the largest of the seven islands making up this group i could clearly distinguish the tilled soil on the outskirts of the various mountain chains running parallel with the coastlines and its volcanoes crowned by mauna Kea, whose elevation is five thousand meters above sea level among the other specimens of these waterways our nets brought up some peacock-tailed Flabellarian coral polyps flattened into stylus shapes and unique to this part of the ocean. The Nautilus kept to its southeasterly heading on December first and cut across the equator at longitude 142 degrees. And on the fourth of the same month, after a quick crossing marked by no incident, we raised uh, the Marquesas Islands, three miles off, latitude eight degrees fifty-seven feet south, and longitude 139 degrees 5, thirty-two degrees uh, feet west. I spotted Martin Point off Nuka uh, Hiva. Sure. Chief member of this island group that belongs to France. I could make out only the wooded mountains on the horizon because Captain Nemo hated to hug shore. There are nets brought up some fine fish samples. Dolphin fish with azure fins, golden tails, and flesh that unrivaled um, was unrivaled in the entire world. Races from the genus Hologymnesus that were nearly denuded of scales but exquisite in flavor. Knife jaws with bony beaks. Um, yellowish abacore that were as tasty as Bonita. Yes, they were. All fish were classifying in the ship's pantry. Disgusting. Anyway, I love seafood as much as anybody, but this is kind of a, a, a gluttonous review of how delicious the world's fish are, which I guess back then wasn't as much of an ecological concern as it is now. Because if it was, Jules Verne would have known better than to just have a fucking net dragged across the ocean floor, leaving giant waves of death in its wake, where you're just ripping up coral beds, you monster. Anyway. After leaving these delightful islands for, to the protection of the French flag, the Nautilus covered about 2,000 miles from December 4th to uh, the 11th. Its navigation, navigating was marked by the encounter with an immense school of squid, unusual mollusks that are near neighbors of the cuttlefish. French fishermen gave them the name cuckoldfish, Fish, and they belong to the class Cephe... Yeah. Palladia. Family dibranchia. I knew how to pronounce these words. Hold on. Dibranchia. Dibranchiata? I think it's dibranchiata. Consisting of themselves together with cuttlefish and argonauts. What the fuck is an argonaut? Oh, it's those fucking. I know what a fucking argonaut is. It's the Nautilus. The Nautilus is an argonaut. Let me just confirm that. Argonaut. Uh animal yeah it's a it's an an argonaut it's a it's a nautilus yeah that's that's funny to me that they don't call them nautilus in the uh in the book but they're they're not a lie it's pretty cool it's a very cool looking animal it's one of my favorites that like circular shell and it just kind of pushes its way backwards it's a fucking neat animal it's a neat looking animal and if you don't know what I'm talking about, just picture omenite from the Pokemon series, and then there you go. That's that's exactly what it is. Why do they call squid cuckold fish? I'd be curious to find that out. Let me. All right, one more thing. Um, what happens if I just type that in? Cuckold fish. Why do they call it? I mean, there's the there's bivalve. Cu- I know what I know what it means to. Uh, I know what a. Cu- uh. Well, this was a mistake to Google this. Uh, I'm just going to accept it that that's a thing they do and we're just going to move on. Um, boy, that got dirty fast. And the naturalists of antiquity made a special study of them. These animals furnished many ribald figures of speech for soapbox orders in Greek marketplaces, as well as excellent dishes for the tables of rich citizens, if we we're, if were to believe. Athenius, a Greek physician, predating Galen. It was during the nights. Why wouldn't we believe him? It's not like the Greeks lied. They lied all the time. They lied all the time. It was during the night of December 9th to the 10th that the Nautilus encountered this army of distinctly nocturnal mollusks. They numbered in the millions. Fuck me, that sucks. They were migrating from temperate zones to zones still warmer, following the itineraries of herrings and sardines. We stared at them through our thick glass windows. They swam backwards with tremendous speed, moving by means of either their locomotive tubes, chasing fish and mollusks, eating the little ones eaten by the big ones, and tossing in an indescribable confusion that, uh, in... The uh, fucking nope and tossing in indescribable confusion the ten feet that nature had rooted in their heads like a hairpiece of pneumatic snakes despite its speed the nautilus navigated for several hours in the midst of the school of animals and its nets brought up an incalculable number among which I recognized all nine species that professor Orbing- Orbing- sure uh, had classified as native to the pacific ocean during this crossing the sea continuously lavished us with the most marvelous sights its variety was infinite It changed its setting and its decor for the mere pleasure of our eyes, and we were called upon not simply to contemplate the works of our Creator in the midst of the liquid element, but also to probe the ocean's most daunting mysteries. During the day of December 11th, I was busy reading in the main lounge, Nedland and Count were observing the luminous waters through the gaping panels. The Nautilus was motionless, its ballast tanks full, it was sitting at a depth of a thousand meters in the comparatively unpopulated region of the ocean where only larger fish put in the occasional appearance. Just then I was studying a delightful book by Jean Mac, by Jean Mack, there you go, The Servants of the Stomach, and savoring its ingenious teachings when Count interrupted my readings. "'Would well, Master kindly come here for an instant?' he said to me in an odd voice. "'What is it, Count Cell? There's something Master should see!' I stood up and went and leaned on my elbow before the window and I saw it. In the broad electric daylight, an enormous black mass quite motionless hung suspended in the midst of the waters." I observed it carefully, trying to find out the nature of this giant cessation. Then a sudden thought crossed my mind. A ship! I exclaimed. Uh, yes! The Canadian replied. A disabled craft that's sinking straight down. Nedland was not mistaken. We were in the presence of a ship whose severed shrouds still hung from their clasps. Its hull looked in good condition and must have gone under only a few hours before. The stumps of three masts, dropped off two feet above the deck, indicated a flooding ship that had been forced to sacrifice its mastings. But it had healed sideways, filling completely, and it was um, it was listing to port even yet. A sorry sight, this carcass lost under the waves. But, sorry still was the side on deck, where it lashed with the ropes to prevent them being washed overboard, some human corpses still lay. I counted them uh, four. I counted four of them. Four men, one still standing at the helm. Then a woman halfway under the skylight in the afterdeck, holding a child in her arms. This woman was young. Under the brilliant lights of the Nautilus's rays, I could make out her features, which the water had yet decomposed. With supreme effort, she had lifted her child above her head, and the poor creature's little arms were still twined around its mother's neck. The postures of the four seamen seemed ghastly to me, twisted from convulsive moments, uh, movements as of making a last effort to break loose from the ropes that bound them to the ship. And the helmsman, standing alone, calmer, his face smooth than serious, his grizzled hair plastered to his brow, his hands clutching the wheel, seemed even yet to be guiding his wrecked, three-masted ship through the ocean depths. What a scene. We stood stum- dumbstrucked. Uh, dumbstruck, hearts pounding before the shipwreck caught in the act as if it had been photographed in its final moment, so to speak. And already I could see enormous sharks moving in eyes ablaze, drawn by the lure of human flesh. That's not how sharks work, but that's fine. Meanwhile, turning, the Nautilus made a circle around the sinking ship and for an instant I could read the board on its stern. The Florida! Sunderland, England. Interesting. Why do we care that the ship's called Florida? Anyway, that's the end of the chapter for some reason. So I finally got around to watching a brand new movie that I've been meaning to see for some time, available on Hulu, and that is Palm Springs, new romantic comedy from Andy Sandberg and Christine Migliotti, and JK Simmons. Um, also the guy that plays Superman in um, the Arrowverse on the CW, which I thought was just awesome. Um, and I recognize the dad from somewhere, but I can't remember where, anyway. Watch this movie. Um, it is wonderful. It's super funny, it's super sweet. It gets in and it gets out. It's like a pretty solid 90 minutes. I think that's even including uh, the credits of the film. It's like, it does exactly what it wants to do and then it just fucking bounces. Um, it was incredibly well received. It premiered at Sundance and it was like, I just, I just really enjoyed it. I laughed really hard. It hit you in the feels. It's a very good romantic comedy. It does the um, time loop thing. That's the that's the premise of the film. Is that these two are stuck in an infinite time loop, a la Groundhog's Day, and it's how they cope and um, just go through that experience. And it's it's really well done. It's the type of movie where when it's over, you don't really want to say goodbye to the characters, um, and you just want to like live in that in that that world just a little bit longer i'm not saying i want to live in a time loop i just like i really enjoyed how they set it up and what they did with the premise and it actually has some moments of like um i don't even i don't know how to describe them like there are some emotional beats in this movie that kind of blindside you and are really well executed um and there's also some dinosaurs for some reason which i thought was was kind of strange, but I I very very much enjoyed it. And on my my recent kick of like looking at Peacock and looking at HBO Max and all the stuff that I talk about Palm Springs, like at the very least, if you don't have Hulu, do the free trial just to see this film. It's it is very very good, um, and I think everybody does a truly marvelous job. And even if it has some some standard moments that you see in most romantic comedy films uh the way they're executed here was done in a fairly fresh way and I think a lot of that has to do with Andy Samberg's like natural charisma and ability to just be funny with like anything he does so like a plus for for that just on its own and Christine Milioti just fuck like this movie would not have succeeded without the like the the natural abilities of Andy and Christine to just fucking sell their roles and just put on a clinic when it comes to acting. It was it was excellent. It was really really well done, and um, I'm gonna recommend it to fucking everybody. Just go watch this movie, even if you don't like romantic comedies. Go watch this movie. It's real fucking good. Let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. i I've eaten. I have more water, and I'm still super tired. Chapter 19: Vanicoral. What the fuck does that mean? It probably sounds on my phone. There we go. This dreadful sight was the first of a whole series of maritime catastrophes that the Nautilus would encounter on its run. When it plied more heavily traveled seas, we often saw wrecked hulls rotting in midwater, farther down cannon shells, anchors, chains, and a thousand other iron objects rusting away. Meanwhile, continuously swept along by the Nautilus, where we lived in near isolation, we raised the Tuamotu Islands on December 11th. That old, dangerous group associated with the French global navigator, Commander Bougainville. It stretches from Ducie Island to Lazarus Island over an area of 500 leagues from the east-southeast to the west-northwest between latitude 13 degrees 30 feet and 23 degrees 50 feet south and between longitude 125 degrees 30 feet and 150 degrees 30 feet west. This group of islands covers a surface area of 370 square leagues and is made up of some 60 subgroups among which we noted the Gambier Group, which is a French protectorate These islands are coral formations, thanks to the work of polyps. A slow but steady upheaval will someday connect these islands to each other. Later on, this um, new island will be fused to its neighboring island groups. A fifth continent will stretch from New Zealand to New Caledonia, as far as the Marquesas Islands. The day I expanded this theory to Captain Yma, he answered me coldly, The Earth does not need new continents, but new men. Sailors like led the Nautilus straight to Rio... Rio, R-E-A-O, Rio Island, one of the most unusual in this group, which was discovered in 1822 by Captain Bell aboard the Minerva. So I was able to study the madreporic process that had created the islands in this ocean. Madrepores, which one must guard against confusing with precious coral, clothe their tissue in a limestone crust. And their variations in structure have led my famous mentor, Professor Milne Edwards, to classify them into five divisions. The tiny microscopic animals that secrete this polyperi live in by the billions in the depths of their cells. Their limestone deposits build up the rocks, reefs, islets, and islands. In some places, they form atolls, a circular ring surrounding a lagoon or a smaller inner lake that gaps place in contact with the sea. Elsewhere, they take up the shape of barrier reefs, such as those that exist along the coasts of New Caledonia and several of the tu- Tuamotu Islands, and still other locales, such as Reunion Island and the islands of Maritus. Uh, they build fringing reefs, high straight walls, next to which the ocean's depth is considerable. Oh, well, isn't that fun and exciting? While cruising along only a few cable lengths from the underpinnings of Rio Island, I marveled at the gigantic piece of work accomplished by these microscopic laborers. These walls were the express achievements of Madripoors known by the name of Fire Coral, Finger Coral, Star Coral, and Stony Coral. These polyps grow exclusively in the agitated strata at the surface of the sea, and so in it's in the upper reaches that they begin to uh, begin these substructures which sink little by little together with the secreted rubble binding them. This, at least, is the theory by Mr. Charles Darwin, who thus explains the formation of atolls, a theory superior, in my view, to the one that says these matroporic edifices sit on the summits of mountains or volcanoes submerged a few feet below the sea level. We could observe these strange walls quite closely. Our sounding lines indicated that they dropped perpendicularly for more than 300 meters, and our electric beams made the bright limestone positively sparkle. In reply to the question, council asked me at the grow growth rate of these colossal barriers. I thought I thoroughly amazed him by saying scientists put it at an eighth of an inch per biennium. Biennium. What is that? Let me, let me. I've never heard that unit of measurement for time. B i e n n i u m, biennium. A uh, specified period of two years. Biennium. Well, isn't that a useless fucking phrase, however you say, every two years? Don't have to be all fancy with your bienniums. Therefore, he said to me, to build these walls, it took... uh, Ah, 192,000 years, my gambling counsel, which significantly extends the biblical days of creation. What's more, the formation of coal, in other words, the petrification of forests swallowed by floods, and the cooling of basaltic rocks likewise call for a much longer period of time. I'd add that those days in the Bible must represent whole epics, not nearly the lapse of time between two sunrises, because according to the Bible itself, the sun doesn't date from the first day of creation. So, he's trying to explain why it took a fucking long-ass time to make the thing, even though the Bible only existed for X amount of years, by stating that those seven days in which the fucking God created the world, those are not 24-hour days, those could be of infinite length. Which, fine, you know what, fair, but also, that's dumb. It's quite clearly, like, uh, it's just, it's just you trying to shoehorn it in. It's kind of, it's not, not great logic there, but, you know, whatever. When the Nautilus returned to the surface of the ocean, I could take in Rio Island over the, its whole flat, wooded expanse. Obviously, its matroporic rocks had made fertile by tornadoes and thunderstorms. One day, carried off by a hurricane from neighboring shores, some seeds fell onto these limestone beds, mixing with the decomposed particles of fish and marine plants to form vegetable hummus. Propelled by the waves, a coconut arrived on its new coast. Its germ took root. Its trees grew tall, catching stem. Uh, Steam off the water. A brook was born. Little by little vegetation spread. Tiny animals, worms, insects, rode ashore on tree trunks, snatched from islands to windward. Turtles came to lay their eggs. Birds nested in the young trees. In this way, animal life developed. And drawn by the greenery and fertile soil, man appeared. That is how these islands were formed. The immense achievement of microscopic animals. That's awesome as hell. It's like a goddamn nature documentary. Near evening, Rio Island melted in the distance. The nautilus, nautilus noticeably changed course. After touching the tropic Capricorn, it launched 135 degrees. It headed west to northwest, going back up the whole intertropical zone. Although the summer sun lavished its... Oh, God. Summer sun ravished its lavished its rays upon us. We never suffered from the heat. Because 30 or 40 meters underwater, the temperature did not go over 10, degree, 10 to degrees to 12 degrees centigrade. That should have been 10 to 12 degrees centigrade heat. That's poorly written but that's fine Did something bite me what the hell is that? what's going on under here Huh. felt like something was on my knee but there's no sign of a critter or a spider or anything like that so it's just one of those fucking disgusting weird things that happens. By December 15th, we had left the alluring society islands in the west. Likewise, elegant Tahiti, queen of the Pacific. In the morning, I spotted this island's lofty summits a few miles leeward. Its waters supplied excellent fish for the tables on board. Mackerel, bonito, and a few varieties of that sea serpent named the Moray Eel. Nautilus had cleared 8,100 miles, we logged 9,720 miles when we passed between Tonga Islands where the crews from the Argo, Port-au-Prince, and Duke of Portland had perished, the island group of Samoa scene of the slaying of Captain Delangle, friend of that long-lost navigator, the Count de la Perouse. We raised, then we raised, the Fiji Islands where savages slaughtered sailors from the unions, as well as Captain Bur, um, Burrio, commander of the Darling Josephine out of Nantes, France. Extending over an expanse of 100 leagues north to north to south, over 90 leagues east to west, this island group lies between latitude 2 degrees and 6 degrees south, between longitude 174 degrees and 179 degrees west, and it consists of an number of islands, islets, reefs, among which we among which we noted the islands of Viti Levu, Vanu Levu, and Cavadu. The Dutch navigator Tasman, who discovered this group in 1643, the same year the island physicist. Torricelli invented the barometer and King Louis the 14th ascended the French throne I'll let the reader decide which of these deeds was more beneficial to humanity mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. French <laughs> French Ooh wow the barometer that's exciting Coming later Captain Cook in 1774 real Admiral Day oh my god real Admiral Day and Trastica Sure in 1793 Finally Captain Dumont d'Urville in 1827, untangle the whole chaotic geography of this island group. The Nautilus drew near Whalia Bay, an unlucky place for England's Captain Dillon, who was the first to shed light on the long-standing mystery surrounding the disappearance of ships under the Count de la Perusie. This bay, rep- uh, repeatedly dredged, furnished a huge supply of excellent oysters. As the Roman playwright Seneca recommended, we opened them right at our table, then stuffed ourselves. These mollusks belonged to the species known by the name as Ostrea lamellosa, whose members are quite common off Corosica. This whaleia oyster bank must have been extensive, for certainly if they hadn't been controlled by numerous natural checks, these clusters of shellfish would have ended up jam-packing, jam-packing the bay, since as many as two million eggs have been counted in a single individual. And if Mr. Nedland did not repent of his gluttony at our Oyster Feast, it's because oysters are the only dish that never causes indigestion. Is that? What? That cannot be. That can't. No. Can oysters give you indigestion? The illness most of uh, most concern from eating raw or uncooked oysters or clams are vibrio infections, norovirus infections, and hepatitis A. So Um do Yeah, no, that's just bullshit. Um that is That is patently untrue. What, what Jules Verne just said? It's the only, only, what did he say? Where is it? Um, uh, it's because oysters are the only dish that never causes indigestion. That is patently false. Do not trust that. Because uh, oysters are like, they're bivalve filtered creatures. So it could take in the toxins of the local water. And while it might not give you like an upset stomach, it will give you something much, much, much worse. Like lead poisoning and mercury poisoning or hepatitis A. So fucking just, you know, be careful. God damn it. In fact, it takes no less than 16 dozen of these headless mollusks to supply the 315 grams that satisfies one man's minimum daily requirement for nitrogen. 16... Takes no less than 16 dozen. So you... you would have to eat 16 dozen oysters to get your minimum requirement of nitrogen. Interesting. What an inefficient system that would be. On the December twenty-fifth, Christmas Day, the Nautilus navigated to make the island group of the new um, of the new Hebrides. Hebrides, I don't know, which the Portuguese Sevarequeiros discovered in sixteen o six, which Commander Bougainville explored in seventeen sixty eight, into which Captain Cook gave its current name in seventeen seventy three. This group is chiefly made up of nine large islands and forms a one hundred and twenty league strip from the north to northwest to the south to the southeast. Lying between latitude 2 degrees and 15 degrees south, between longitude 164 degrees and 168 degrees. At the moment of our noon sight, we passed fairly close to the island of Aru, which looked to me like a mass of greenwoods crowned by a peak of great height. That day was Yuletide, and it struck me that Nedland badly missed celebrating Christmas, that genuine family holiday where Protestants are such zealots. I hadn't seen Captain Nemo for over a week, when, on the morning of the 27th, he entered the main lounge, usually as usual, acting as if he had just been gone for five minutes. "'I was busy tracing the Nautilus's course on the world map.' The captain approached, placed a finger over a position on the chart, and pronounced just one word. "'Vanicoro!' His name was MAGIC. It was the name of those islets where vessels under the Count de la Perouse had miscarried.' I straightened suddenly. "'The Nautilus is bringing us to Vanicoro?' I asked. "'Yes, professor!' "'Captain replied, "'Don't be able to visit those famous islands where the compass and the astrolabe came to grief, "'if you would like, Professor. "'When will we reach, Vanakoro? "'We already have, Professor.' "'I uh, followed by Captain Nemo climbed onto the platform, "'and from there my eyes eagerly scanned the horizon. "'In the northeast there emerged two volcanic islands of unequal size, "'surrounded by a coral reef whose circuit measured forty miles. "'We were facing the island of Vanakoro proper, "'to which Captain Dumont d'Urville had given the name, "'Island of the Search.' We lay right in front of the little harbor of Havana, located in latitude 16 degrees, four feet south, and longitude 64 degrees, 32 feet west, east. Its shores seemed covered with greenery, from its beaches to the summits inland, crowned by Mount Capogo, Capogo, which is 476 fathoms high. Can you use a non-water-based measurement system to tell me how tall a fucking mountain is? But no, that's fine. After clearing the outer belt of rocks via a narrow passageway of the Nautilus lay inside the breakers where the sea had a depth of 30 to 40 fathoms. See? Under this green shade, some tropical evergreens, I spotted a few savages, who looked extremely startled, at our approach, and the long, blackish object advancing flush with the water. Didn't they see some fearsome cestation that were obliged to view with distrust? Just then Captain you asked me what I knew about the shipwreck of the Count de la Pruse. Whatever he knows, Captain, answered him. And could you kindly tell me what everyone knows? He asked in a gentle, ironic tone. Very easily. I related to him the final deeds of Captain Ermont de had brought to light, deeds described here in this heavily condensed summary of the whole matter. Oh Jesus Christ. I just I just gave the whole summary. Um like I just read like two and a half pages before I realized that none of that fucking shit recorded, so here we go again. Mm 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 mm. In 1785, the Count de la Perouse and his subordinate Captain de Langle were sent by King Louis XVI of France on a voyage to circumnavigate the globe. They boarded two sloops of war, the Compass and the Astrolabe, which we've never seen again. In 1791, justly concerned about the fate of these two sloops of war, the French government fitted out two large cargo boats, the Search and the Hope, which left Brest on September 28th under the orders of Rear Admiral Bernie de Ruff- Two months later, the testimony of a certain Commander Bowen aboard the Abramiral alleged that rubble from shipwreck vessels had been seen on the coast of New Georgia, but the d- was unaware of this news, which seemed a bit dubious anyhow, and headed towards the Admiralty Islands, which had been named in a report by one Captain Hunter at the site of the Count de la Perouse shipwreck. They looked in vain. The hope in the surge passed right by Vanacora without stopping, and overall, this voyage was plagued by misinformation, ultimately costing the lives of Rear Admiral Diff- Two of his supporting officers and several seamen. Ah, uh, from his crew. It was an old hand out of the Pacific, an English adventurer, Captain Peter Dillon, who was the first to pick up the trail off by the castaways of the wrecked vessel. On May 15th, 1824, his ship, the St. Patrick, passed by Tikopia Tycho, uh, Island, one of the new Hebrides. There, the native boatman pulled alongside in a dugout canoe and sold silver, a silver sword handle, bearing the imprint of characters engraved with a cunning to known as a burren. Furthermore, <coughs> this native boatman... Uh, exclaimed or claimed that during a stay in Vanacora six years earlier he had seen two Europeans belonging to ships that had run aground in the island's reefs many years ago Dylan guessed that the ships at issue were those under the Count de la Perouse ships whose disappearance had shaken the entire world he tried to reach Vanacora where according to the native boatmen, a good deal of rebel from the shipwreck could still be found but winds and currents prevented him doing so Dillenberg returned to Calcutta. He was able to interest the Asiatic Society and the East India Company in his discovery. A ship named after the search was placed at his disposal, and he departed on January 23, 1827, accompanied by a French deputy. This new search, after putting in several stops over the Pacific, dropped anchor before Vanacoro on July 7, 1827 in the same harbor of Vanna, where the Nautilus was currently floating. There, Dylan collected many relics of the shipwreck, iron utensils, anchors, islets from pulleys, swivel guns, an 18-pound shell, and the remains of some astronomical instruments, a piece of stern rail, and a bronze bell, bearing the inscription, Made by Bazin, the foundry marked at Brest Arsenal of 1785, there could no longer be any doubt. Finishing his investigations, Dylan stayed at the site of the casualty until a month of October. Then he left Venacoro, headed towards New Zealand, dropped anchor in Calcutta on April 7, 1828, and returned to France, where he received a very cordial welcome from King Charles X. But just then, uh, the renowned French explorer Captain Dumont d'Urville, unaware of Dylan's activities, already set sail to search elsewhere for the site of the shipwreck. In essence, a whaling vessel had reported that some metals and a cross to St. Louis had been found in the hands of savages in the Louisiana Islands in New Caledonia. So Captain Dumont D'Urville had put to sea in command of a vessel named after the Astro and just two months after Dillon left Vandacoro, Dumont D'Urville dropped anchor before Hobart. Then he heard about Dylan's findings and he learned further that a certain James Hobbs, Chief Officer of the Union out of Cal- Calcutta, had put to shore on an island located latitude 8 degrees 18 feet south, launched 256 degrees 30 feet east, and had noted that these natives of the uh, of those waterways making use of iron bars and red fabrics. Pretty perplexed, uh, Jumaat d'Urville didn't know if he should give credence to these reports which have been carried in some of the less reputable newspapers. Nevertheless, he started on Dillon's trail. On February 10th, 1828, the new Astrolabe Behove, before Tikopea Island, took on a guide and interpreted the person of a deserter who had settled there, plied a course towards Vandicora, raised it on February 12th, and sailed it along the reefs until the 14th, only to uh, drop anchor on the 20th inside the barrier in the harbor of Vanna. On the 23rd, several officers circled the island brought back some rubble of little importance. The natives, adopting a system of denial and evasion, refused to guide them to the site of the casualties. Uh, this rather, their shady conduct aroused the suspicion that the natives had mistreated the castaways, and in truth, the natives seemed afraid that Dumont d'Urville had come to avenge the Count de la Perouse and his unfortunate companions. But on the 26th, appeased with gifts and seeing that they didn't need to fear any reprisal, the natives led chief officer, Mr. Janoc, uh, quit fuck it, Mr. Jack, uh, to the site of the shipwreck, at the location in three or four fathoms of water between Paiu and Vanna Reefs. There lay some anchors, cannons, ingots of iron, lead, all caked with limestone, con- um, consecrations. Concretions. Yeah. A launch and a whaleboat from the new astrolabe were steered to this locality, um, and after going to exhausting lengths, its crew managed to dredge up an anchor weighing 1,800 pounds, a cast iron, 8 pounder cannon, a lead ingot, two copper swivel guns. Questioning the natives, Captain Dumont de also learned that after La Perouse's two ships had miscarried on the island Reefs, the count, built a smaller craft, only to go off and miscarry a second time. Where? Nobody knew. The commander of the new astrolabe uh, then had a monument erected under a tuft of mangroves, in memory of the famous navigator and his companions. It was a simple quadrilangular pyramid set on a coral base with no ironwork to tempt the native avarices. Uh, Then Dumont-Urville tried to depart, but his crews were run down from the fevers raging on these unsanitary shores. Quite ill himself, he was unable to weigh anchor until March 17th. Meanwhile, fearing that Dumont wasn't abreast of Dylan's activities, the French government l- sent a sloop of war to Manicora, the, the Bayonets under Commander Legerant de Tromlin, who had been stationed in the American West Coast. Dropping a group three a few months after the new astrolabe's departure, the Bayonets didn't find any additional evidence, but verified that the savages hadn't disturbed the memorial honoring the Count de la Perouse. It, uh, this is the substance of the account I gave Captain Ima. So, he said to me, The castaways built a third ship on Vanicorder Island, and to this day nobody knows where they went and perished. Nobody knows? Captain Ema didn't reply, but signaled me to follow him to the main lounge. The nautilus sank a few meters beneath the waves, and the panels opened. I rushed to the windows and saw crusts of coral, fungus coral, siphon... Bunch bunch of fucking coral! Oh my god, these lists of animals. Anyway. Siphonulia coil... Alcyon coral sea enemies from the genus Carophylia, plus myriads of charming fish, including greenfish, damselfish, sweepers, snappers, squirrelfish. What the fuck is a squirrelfish? Never heard of that one. Alright, you've you piqued my interest, Vern. Squirrel fish. Okay, just a, just a fucking fish. Long spine squirrelfish. It's just a fish. Looks like a fish. It's a fish. Underneath this coral covering, I detected some rubble of old dredges. I was expecting a fish in the shape of a squirrel, if I'm perfectly honest with you. Detected some rubble of old dredges that had been able to tear free iron stirrups, anchors, cannon shells, tackle from a capstan, stem post, all objects hanging from the wrecked ships that now carpeted the moving flowers. As I stared at this desolate wreckage, Captain Nino told me in a solemn voice, Commander de la Perú set out on December 7, 1875 with his ships the Compass and the Astrolabe. He dropped anchor first at Botany Bay, visited Donga Island in New Caledonia, headed towards the Santa Cruz Islands, put in at Nomuca, one of the islands held in the Hayapai groups. Then the ships arrived at the unknown east of Vanacoro, traveling to its lead the Compass ran a of breakers on the southerly coast. The Astrolabe went to its rescue and also ran aground. The first ship was destroyed almost immediately. The second stranded to leeward held up for some days. The native gave the castaways a fair enough welcome. The latter took a residence on the island, and built a smaller craft with rubble from the larger two. A few men stayed voluntarily in Vanikoro. The others, weak and ailing, set sail with the count de la Perus. They headed to the Solomon Islands. They all perished uh, with the hands on the, we- the westerly coast of the chief island of that group, between Cape Deception and Cape Satisfaction. How do you know all this? I exclaimed. "'Here is what I found at the very site of that final shipwreck.' Captain showed me a tin box stamped with the coat of arms of France, all corroded by saltwater. He opened it, and I saw a bundle of papers, yellowed but still legible. They were the actual military orders given by France's Minister minister of Navy to Commander de la Perouse with a note along the margins in the handwriting of King Louis XVI. "'Ah, with a splendid death for our seamen! Captain Nemo said. "'The Coral grave is a tranquil grave, and may heaven grant that my companions and I rest in no other.' Fuck me, that was a a chapter with an experience. So this episode is going to be really um, focused on moving, um, because that's very prominent in in what's going on in my world right now, which is a, a weird thing because the world has exploded. And such things tend not to be on most people's minds. Um, I've found as I've been talking about the fact that by the time you guys hear this, this very day, um, is I'm moving, I'm actively moving. I've, I've got like movers here and they're packing all my shit. Well, not all my shit's packed. They're putting it in a truck and then they're going to drive it to the new place and then they're going to throw it into the new place and then they're going to leave. And then I'm going to have to figure it out from there. But, um, basically it's, it's, been very very long in coming and um, I've been uh, living in the same place for four years pretty much out, straight out of college I've been I've been living here and uh, I'm very excited to have my own place that's fully paid for by me and it's it's gonna be it's gonna be pretty fantastic I actually went to see the apartment for the first time uh, this past week I signed the lease agreement before I saw the apartment because the building is brand new. Um, it was finished Um, actually it's not even finished being built yet it is still actively being built um, when I went to visit it this past week so portions of it are complete it is complete enough for me to move in let's put it that way Um, but when I showed up they were still actively building parts of the building uh, which I thought was was interesting and um, it didn't really hit me that I was moving and I was going to be on my own and fully self-sufficient until I saw the apartment um, and my first thought was this apartment's a little narrow, um, because it, it was, it, it seemed, um, it seemed narrow and it's going to seem even narrower once I get my stuff in there. But I think it will go from being narrow to cozy is how I'm going to describe it. I mean, at its widest point, it's like 11 and a half feet wide, which you could probably paste that out. It's not, it's not that wide, but it is long. So it does make up for it. It's a very open plan um, look to it. I believe you can actually go and check out some of the pictures on uh, the Going Upcast blog if you are if you are so inclined. You should be able to. That's tied to my um my Instagram account. Oh, this hasn't updated in a minute. Okay, I'll fix that. Um, for some reason it hasn't hasn't updated. Uh, but there should be some new new G Dang pictures. On uh, on there, or you can go to Instagram at Going Upcast, and you can see um all the before pictures of the apartment that I that I posted. The ceiling is like knotted pine wood. Uh, the floor is a wood laminate. It confuses me that the ceiling is actual wood and the floor isn't, but that's fine. Um, the cabinets are really good. Indeed, I have so much fucking cabinet space. I'm sitting here being like, I'm not gonna be able to fill this. It's a ludicrous amount of cabinet space, so much so that I'm probably going to put other non-kitchen-related things into those fucking cabinets, especially the pantry. The pantry has, like, it's it's across the way from the kitchen and the, these two massive fucking pantry units, and I'm like, I could probably take the shelves out of one of these units, stick them somewhere, like in the laundry room or something like that, and um, put one of those, like, bars in to into there. And then just fucking have, like, a hall closet, you know? Um, and I'm considering it, quite honestly, because that sounds that sounds really nice. It, a place to keep all of my um, heavy winter coats. Or I can just put my winter coats on the fucking shelves. Like, that's fine, too. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's gonna be really nice, I think. Um, there are definitely a couple of things I know I need. Like, blackout curtains, because my apartment is west-facing. Which means, as the sun sets, my apartment will roast... So I need something to help protect me from, from that. Uh, I believe the unit does have air conditioning. I don't know how to use it yet, and that's a, that's pretty important. We've got two ceiling fans um, that are very quiet, even at high speed, which is wonderful. Um, I have a balcony, which isn't all that large, but I have a balcony, so I'm not going to complain. Um, my bedroom is actually pretty good size. It's roughly the same size and shape of my current bedroom, uh, if not a bit bigger. Because it doesn't have, like the the walk-in closet is like its own separate space. It's not really a part of the bedroom. It's actually uh, in between my bedroom and the bathroom, so it's kind of like a a through walkway kind of area, um, which is also super convenient. But I am I'm eager to move in. I'm eager to have all of my stuff in the room so I can start building the IKEA furniture and putting things on shelves and finding homes for everything um that's going to be that's going to be a lot of fun the gym is fantastic uh they're working on like a social distancing method that will allow like five people into the gym at any one given time but since the gym is 24 hours a day i don't imagine i'll have difficulty getting time to utilize the gym especially knowing me because i'm probably going to be in there for like less than an hour and then i'm going to go upstairs and shower um the bathtub is excellent uh, that was a, that was a big thing for me. If you, if you haven't listened to the going up cast before, I am a big proponent of the art of bath taking. I, I find it to be a, a very relaxing way to, uh, unwind at the end of a day. This being said, I don't take them that often because I'm still environmentally aware that baths are not the greatest, but every, every now and then, um, it is, it is fine. In my opinion, and the bathtub is deeper than my current one by a considerable margin, so I can actually take like a proper bath, uh, which I'm which I'm very excited about. I got like some bath bombs and go the whole 9 yards. Um, yeah, it it should be it should be good. I am right next to a microbrewery, so I'm going to have to f- fucking make friends with them and figure out what they got going on because that's too damn convenient. Also immediately across the street is a, uh, is a grocery store that is fantastic. Like I, I now have, it's, it's a blessing and a curse in my opinion, because one, if I'm cooking something and I'm like, fuck, I need one more like Spanish onion. I can just jog across the street and pick up a Spanish onion and come back. Or it's like Sunday morning. I'm like, fuck, I want a donut and, and I can just jog across the tree and get a donut. So it's, you know, it's it's going to be a really good thing if I'm missing shit. And it's going to be a really bad thing if I'm wanting shit. Because now the convenience of having a grocery store right the fuck there is now going to taunt me and be like, shit. I don't need it, but I want it. So, yeah. And that is kind of where we're at right now. There's still a lot of packing that needs to occur. Like all of my bathroom stuff, all of my kitchen stuff clothing linens those sorts of things um and i'm hopefully going to do those things soon um that's kind of the game plan for uh this weekend like i took um last thursday and last friday off so i could do those things um and i'm in the middle of that time period now so i need to do those things uh and it's gonna be it's gonna be pretty good um yeah it's it's nerve-wracking um and it'll be quite a quite an adjustment, and we'll see how soundproof the uh, apartments are. That's uh, a a bit of a concern from for me. It was very quiet when I got there, but that's because nobody lives in it right now. Um, I imagine that will change as the days and weeks progress down the future times. So, but for right now, everything's looking looking pretty solid. I'll make sure that the blog is updated so you guys can see the the images, or you can just go to Instagram at GoingUpCast. Check out the images there. But for now, let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. Chapter 20, the Torres Straight. Torres? Straight? Sure. During the night of December 27th to December 28th, the Nautilus left the waterways of Vanicoro. But, is that a real place? Let me just, let me just real quick Google Vanicoro an island in the Solomon Island chain. It is indeed a real place, and it's real pretty. It's a pretty island. And looks, it talks about shipwrecks and 20,000 leagues under the sea. Hey, what a surprise. It's almost like it's exactly what the fuck. Okay. Uh, behind with Extraordinary Speed. It's heading with southwesterly, and in three days, it had cleared the 750 leagues that separated the separated La Peruse's islands from the southeastern tip of uh, Papua. Papua? Papua New Guinea? Papua. Yeah, okay. On January 1st, 1868, bright and early, Council joined
1: me on the platform. Will, master, the gallant lad said to me, allow me to wish him a happy new year. Good heaven, Councils, it's just like the old times in my office at the Botanical Gardens in Paris. I accept your kind wishes and I thank you for them. Only, I'd like to know what you mean by
0: a happy year under the circumstance in which we are placed. Is it a year that we will continue our imprisonment to an end, or a year that we'll see this strange voyage continue?
1: Ye gods! Kansal replied. I hardly know what to tell Master. We're certainly seeing some unusual things, and for two months we've had no time of boredom. The latest wonder is always the most astonishing, and if this progression gives up, I can't imagine what its climax will be. In my opinion, we'll never have such an opportunity. Never, Kansal. Besides, Mr. Le- Nemo really lives up to his Latin name, since he couldn't be less in the way if he didn't exist. True enough, Cancel. Therefore. Oh god, it's way too early in the morning for this. Therefore, with all due respect, Master, I think a Happy New Year will be a year less us see everything. Let us see everything. Everything, Cancel. No huh? oh year could be that long, but what does Nedlin think about all this? Nedland's thoughts are exactly the opposite of mine. Council replied. He has a practical mind and a demanding stomach. He's tired of staring at fish and eating them day in and day out. The shortage of wine, bread, and meat is unsuitable for an upstanding Anglo-Saxon. A man accustomed to beefsteak and unfazed by regular doses of brandy or gin. From my part, Council, that doesn't bother me in the least, and I've adjusted very nicely to the diet on board. So have I, Council replied. Accordingly? I think as much about staying as Mr. Nedlin thinks about his making his escape. Thus, if this New Year isn't a happy one for me, it will be for him, and vice versa. No matter what happens, one of us will be pleased. So in conclusion, I wish Master to have whatever his heart desires. Thanks, Council. Only I
0: must ask you to postpone the question of New Year's gifts, and temporarily accept a hearty handshake in their place. That is all I have on me. Master has never been more generous, Counsel replied. And with that, the gallant lad went away. Oh, thank God fucking cancel. By January 2nd, we had fared 11,340 miles, hence 5,250 leagues, from our starting point in the seas of Japan. Before the Nautilus Spur there stretched the dangerous waterways of the Coral Sea off the northern coast of Australia, our boat cruised along a few miles away from that daunting shoal where Captain Cook's ships well nigh miscarried on June 10th, 1770. The craft that Cook was aboard charged into some coral rock, and if his vessel didn't go down, it was thanks to the circumstance that a piece of coral broke off in the collision and plugged the very hole it had made in the hole. How convenient. I would never have been deeply interested in visiting this long 360-league reef, against which the ever-surging sea broke with the fearsome intensity of thunderclaps, but just then, the nautilus slanting fins took us to great depths and I could see nothing of those high coral walls. I had to rest content with the various specimens of fish brought up by our nets. Among others, I noted some longfin albacore, a species in the genus scomber, as big as tuna, bluish in the flanks, and streaked with crosswise strips that disappear when the animal dies. This, uh, this, really? That's weird. These fish followed us in schools and supplied our table with very dainty flesh. We also got a large number of yellow-green gilt-head, half a decimeter long and tasting like a geratum plus some flying gunnerds authentic underwater swallows that on dark nights alternately streak air and water with their phosphorescent glimmers Uh, among them among mollusks and zoophytes, i found in our trawls meshes various species of alicornian goral sea urchins hammer shells spurred star shells wentle trap snails horn snails shells glass snails and glass nails. There should have been an and there, but there wasn't. The local flora was represented by the fine floating algae, sea tangled and the kelp from the genius macrositis, saturated with the musil- mucilage, their pores perspire, from which I selected a wonderful nemostoma glenoridea, classifying it with the natural curiosities of the museum. Gross. On January 4th, two days after crossing the Coral Sea, we raised the coast of Papua. On this occasion, Captain Ewan told me that he intended to reach the Indian Ocean via the Torres Strait. This was the extent of his remarks. Ned saw with pleasure that this course would bring us once again closer to European seas. Yes, well, I mean, technically. Technically, that's true. The Torres Strait is regarded as no less dangerous for its bristling reefs than for the savage inhabitants of its coasts. It separates Queensland from the Hugh Island of Papua, also called New Guinea. That's the name. Papua New Guinea. Papua, I actually did a report of Papua New Guinea in the 5th grade. And at the time, they still uh, would uh, burn individuals for witchcraft. So, I'm not saying any judgments. I'm just sharing a fun fact that, in like, oh god, that would have been, like, 5th or 6th grade. Which would have been 5th or 6th grade. 2000 and, how old are you in 5th grade? Um. Well, I was I moved in 2008, and that was eighth grade. So then, by that logic, it would have been like 2005, 2006. Um, they they were they burnt like um I mean, it was low numbers. It was like three people a year, but they still burnt people for witchcraft. Um, at least according to a source I had, I can't remember. But yeah, I would love to visit Papua New Guinea one day. I I feel like it is an absolutely beautiful country. Um. But I don't know. I guess we'll find out. Papa is 400 leagues long and 130 leagues wide, with a surface area of 40,000 geographic leagues. It is located between latitude 0 degrees 19 feet and 10 degrees 2 feet south, and between longitude 128 degrees 23 feet and 146 degrees 15 feet. At noon, while the chief officer was taking the sun's altitude, I spotted the summits of the Arfak Mountains rising in terraces, ending in sharp peaks. I've never heard of that mountain range. Arfak Mountains. A mountain range in Indonesia. Oh, those are pretty. Yes, look at that. Found on the Birdhead Peninsula in the province of West, West Papua, Indonesia. The term Arfak is from the language of the coastal Bayek people, meaning inferior. It is due to how big the mountains are compared to the lowland areas found in this region, which I'm guessing is 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 not as um and they're not as impressive then by that, by that point yeah their elevation is uh about ten thousand feet in the air uh trees covering the whole thing they're pretty enough i like th- i like those mountains those are nice mountains they do not end in sharp peaks i i will say for the record they end in, in kind of curved they're like hills basically discovered in 1511 by the portuguese francisco serrano these shores were successfully visited by don jorge de Meneses in 1526, by Juan de Grivala, in 1527, by the Spanish General Alvaro de Savadera, in 1528, by Inigo Ortiz, in 1545, by the Dutchman Schouten. in 1616, by Nicholas Struck, in 1753, by Tasman, Dampier, Fumal, Carrot, Edwards, Bougainville, Cook, McClure, Thomas, Forrest, and Real Admiral de in 1792, by Louis Isidore Dupree in 1823, by Captain Dumont Erville in 1827. It's the heartland of the blacks who occupy all of Malaysia. That's a terrible sentence. Mr. De Rainzi had said, and I hadn't the foggiest inkling that the sailors like was about to bring me face to face with these daunting natives. So the Nautilus hove began the entrance to the world's most dangerous strait—a passageway that even the boldest navigators hesitated to clear. The strait that Louis Louis Valles de Torres, sure, faced on returning from the South Seas of Melanesia, Melanesa, a Melanesia, Melanesia. Never heard of that place. That's fine. The strait in which the sloops of uh, war under Captain Jumont Irville were underground in 1840 and nearly miscarried with all hands. Even the Nautilus, rising superior to every danger in the sea, was about to become intimate with its coral reefs. The Torres Strait was about 34 leagues wide, but it's obstructed by an incalculable number of islands, islets, breakers, and rocks that make it nearly impossible to navigate. Consequently, Captain Nemo took every desired precaution in crossing it. Floating flush with the water, the nautilus moved ahead at a moderate pace. Like a whale's tail, its propeller churned the waves. Slowly. Got a whale of a tail to tell you a line. A whale of a tail or two. That hasn't happened yet in this book, and I'm sad that I haven't been able to sing that song. Um, that, I believe, is sung by Kirk Douglas um, as the character Nedland. So, I don't know. I still need to watch that movie. My plan was to watch the movie after I finished reading the book so I could compare the two. Um, which is something I... I wanted to do with pretty much every book that I'm, that I'm reading, so like, um, if if I haven't seen it in a while, like, after rereading Aragon, I need to watch um, the movie, and Alice in Wonderland, and Peter Pan, and, I mean, Christmas Carol, I would just watched the Muppets one, to be perfectly honest with you, because it's the best adaptation, and I'll fight you on that, um, but I need to watch this movie, because I haven't seen it yet. Also, apparently, they're supposed to fight, a, like, a fucking giant squid at some point, and that hasn't happened yet, so I'm waiting. Taking advantage of the situation, my two companions and I found seats on the ever-deserted platform. In front of us stood the pilot house, and unless I'm extremely mistaken, Captain Ema must have been inside, steering the Nautilus himself. Under my eyes, I had the excellent charts of the Torres Strait that had been surveyed and drawn up by the hydrographic engineer, Vincidon Dumolin and sub-lieutenant, now Admiral, Cuvent Dubois. De Des- Des- Boys. sorry, I almost, I almost mispronounced it properly desk boys who were part of Dumonta Urville's general staff during his final voyage to circumnavigate the globe these along with the efforts of Captain King my name is Captain King actually that's Captain Kidd, isn't it not Captain King Captain King what a fucking great name are the best charts for untangling the snarl of this narrow passageway and I consulted them with scrupulous care around the Nautilus the sea was boiling furiously a stream of waves bearing from, northeast, from southeast to northwest at the speed of two and a half miles per hour broke overheads of coral emerging here and there "'That's one rough sea,' Nanlan told me. "'Abominable indeed,' I replied, "'and hardly suitable for a craft like the Nautilus.' "'That damn captain,' Canadian went on, "'must really be sure of his course, "'because if these clumps of coral are so much as precious, "'they'll rip our hull into a thousand pieces.' "'The situation was indeed dangerous, "'but as if by magic, the Nautilus seemed to glide "'right down the middle of these rampaging reefs. "'It didn't follow the exact course of the zealous "'and the new astrolabe, which had proved so ill-fated "'for Captain Dumont "'It went more to the north, hugged the Murray Islands, "'and returned to the southwest near the Cumberland Passage. That it was about to charge wholeheartedly into this opening, but it went up to the northwest. through a large number of little-known islands and islets and steered towards Towned Island and the Bad Channel. I was already wondering if Captain Marash, to the point of sheer insanity, wanted his ship to tackle the narrows where Dumont d'Urville's two sleeps of war had gone aground. When he changed direction a second time, and cut straight to the west, heading towards Gueboro Island. Sure. Uh, Guéborro Island. I don't know. It's an unfamiliar word to me. By then, it was three o'clock in the afternoon, and the current was slacking off. It was almost full tide. The Nautilus drew nearer this island, which I can see to this day with its remarkable fringe of screw pines. We hugged it from less than two miles out. A sudden jolt threw me down. The Nautilus had struck a reef, and it remained motionless, listing slightly to port. When I stood up, I saw Captain Nemo and his chief officer on the platform. They were examining the ship's cir- uh, circumstances, exchanged a few words, in their incomprehensible dialect. Here is what those circumstances entailed. Two miles to the starboard leg, the previous mentioned island, its coastline curving north to west like an immense arm. To the south and the east, heads of coral were already on full display, left uncovered by the ebbing waters. We had run aground at full tide in one of those seas whose tides are moderate, and inconvenient state of affairs for floating the is off. However, the ship hadn't suffered in any way, so solidly joined was, it, uh, was its hull. But although it could neither sink nor split open, it was in serious danger of being permanently attached to these reefs. And that would have been the finish uh, of Captain Nemo's Submersible. I was mulling this over when the captain approached, cool and calm, forever in control of himself, neither looking alarmed nor annoyed. An accident? I said to him. No, an incident, he replied. He answered me. But an incident, I replied, that may oblige you to become a resident again of the shores you avoid. Captain Nemo gave me an odd look and gestured no, which told me pretty clearly that nothing would ever force him to set foot on a landmass again. Then he said,
1: No, Professor Arnaux. The Nautilus isn't consigned to perdition. It will still carry you through the midst of the ocean wonders. Our voyage is just beginning, and I have no
0: desire to deprive myself so soon of the pleasure of your company. Even so, Captain Nemo went on, ignoring his ironic turn of phrase. The Nautilus has run aground at the moment, and when the sea
1: is full, now then the tides aren't strong in the Pacific, and you can't unballast the Nautilus, which seems impossible to me. I don't see how you'll float it off. You're right, Professor. The Pacific tides are not strong, Captain Nemo replied. But in the Torres Strait, one still finds a meter and a half difference in the level between high and low seas. Today is January 4th, and in five days, the moon will be full. Now then, I would be quite astonished if that good-natured satellite does not sufficiently raise these masses of water and do me a favor, for which I will be forever grateful.
0: This said Captain Emo went below again to the Nautilus's interior, followed by his chief officer. As for her craft, it no longer stirred, uh, staying as motionless as if these coral polyps had already walled in with their indestructible cement. Well, sir," Nedland said to me, coming up after the captain's departure. "Well, Ned, my friend, we will serenely wait for the tide on the ninth, because it seems the moon will have the good nature to float us away. As simple as that. As simple as that. So our captain isn't going to drop anchor, put his engines on chains, or do anything to haul us off, um,
1: since the tide would be sufficient."
0: Council, I replied simply. Um, Canadian stared at council, then he shrugged his shoulders. The seaman in him was talking now. Uh hmm Do 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 do. Oh. Sir, he answered, you can trust me when I say this hunk of iron will never navigate again, on the seas or under them. It's only fit to be sold for its weight. So I think it's time we give Captain Nemo the slip. Ned, my friend, I replied, unlike you, I haven't given up on our valiant Nautilus. In four days, we'll know where we stand on these Pacific tides. Besides, an escape attempt might be timely if we were inside of the coasts of England, or province, but in the way uh, waterways of Papua is another story, and we'll always have that as a last resort if the Nautilus doesn't ride itself which I regard as a real calamity. But couldn't we at least get the lay of the land, Ned went on. Here's an island. On the island there are trees. Under those trees are animals loaded with cutlets and roast beef, which I'd be happy to sink my teeth into. In this instance,
1: our friend Ned is right, Cancel said. And I sided with his views. Couldn't Master persuade his friend Captain Nemo to send the three of us ashore, if only so our feet don't lose the knack of treading on solid parts of the planet. I can ask him, he replied, but he'll refuse. Let Master take the risk, Cancel said. And we'll know where we stand on Captain's affability. Much to my surprise, Captain Nemo gave me the permission
0: I asked for. But he did so with grace and alacrity, not even extracting my promise to return on board. But fleeing across the New Guinea territories would have been extremely dangerous, and I wouldn't have had advised Nedlin to try it. It Better be prisoners aboard the Nautilus than to fall into the hands of the Papuan natives. (sniffs) The skiff was put at our disposal the next morning, and I hardly needed to ask whether Captain Nemo would be coming along. Likewise, assumed that no crewmen would be assigned to us and that Nedland would be in sole charge of piloting the longboat. Besides, the shore lay no more than two miles off, and it would be child's play for the Canadian to guide that nimble skiff through the rows of reefs that's so ill-fated for big ships. Next day, January 5th, after its deck paneling was opened, the skiff was wrenched from its socket and launched to the sea from the top of the platform. Two men were sufficient for this operation. The oars inside were longboat, and we only had to take our seats. At 8 o'clock, armed with rifles and axes, we pulled clear of the Nautilus. The sea was fairly calm, a mild breeze blew from shore in place of the oars council and I rode vigorously, and Ned steered uh, in the narrow lands between the breakers. The skiff handled easily and sped swiftly. Nedland couldn't conceal his glee, he was a prisoner escaping for prison, never dreaming he would need to re-enter it. Meat, he kept repeating, now we will eat red meat, actual game, a real mess call by Thunder. I'm not saying fish aren't good for you, but we mustn't overdo them, and a slice of fresh venison grilled over live coals will be a nice change from our standard fare. You glutton," councilor replied. "You're making my mouth water. It, remain, uh, it remains to be seen," I said. "Whether well, these forests do contain game, and if it's the type of game um aren't of such size that they can hunt the hunter." "Fine," Professor Arnox replied. The Canadian, whose teeth seemed to be as honed as the edge of an axe, but "If there's no other quadruped on the island, I'll eat tiger, tiger sirloin."
1: "Our friend is
0: growing disturbing." "Whatever it is," Nethem went on. "An animal having four feet without feathers, or two feet with feathers, will be greeted by my very own one-gun salute." Oh, good, I replied. The reckless Mr. Land is at it again. Don't worry, Professor Arnox. just keep rowing. Canadian replied, I only need 25 minutes to serve you one of my own special creations. By 8.30, the Nautilus Skiff had just run gently aground on a sandy strand after successfully clearing the ring coral that surrounded the aforementioned island. Interesting. Well, it looks like Nedland is a horrible monster because he's going to murder a tiger. What a fuck. I'm ever on the hunt for new things to enjoy. We talk about, like, streaming services a lot. We talk about video games a lot. We talk about movies a lot. We talk about music a lot. Um, and I also mentioned like, things like the Adventures Zone and Critical Role with pretty steady repetition because they're amazing. Uh, but I stumbled upon a, a a thing that, or a new podcast, rather, new, um, new to me at least. It was started January of last year. Um, that I wanted to talk about because I've listened to a couple of episodes. And it does a really excellent job of hooking you kind of right away, which is a tough thing to do for a DD and d podcast because D&D podcasts are super like specific. If you don't like the cast, if you don't like the characters, then you're not going to have a good time. And that's a hard thing to nail. But I think with, with this cast and these characters... Uh, they have this, this lovable balance of of those things that makes it really easy to enjoy. The episodes are fairly short overall, and it's called Dungeons and Daddies. Uh, the tagline, not a BDSM podcast. It tells the story of four real dads um, who are playing, uh, four fictional dads, um, and their daddy master. And uh, they're on a quest through the Forgotten Realms to save their children who have vanished. Um, and were sold off in his labor and you've got like the jock dad you've got the the hippy dippy uh, new age dad you've got the I was in a cover band dad and then you got the stepdad who is feeling really insecure about how he's not um, his his boy's real father and he's trying to prove himself and it's there's there's uh, some really really good story beats here uh, the crew uh, were uh, unknown to me but it seems more or less like the folks behind Video Game High School, uh, from way back in the day, including Freddie Wong, who plays one of the dads. So if you or if you remember that from like 2008, like 12 fucking years ago, Video Game High School, um, it's those folks, and I enjoyed Video Game High School back in the day. Um, and I think it's on Netflix now. Actually, you can watch it there. It's it's an enjoyable ride, and the podcast itself is very funny. Um, I I can't tell you like the specific names of folks. I just am enjoying the the experience of the D and D podcast that they've they've made here, and it has become like my my third D and D podcast. I have brought it into my life, uh, and a life already full to the brim of D and D. This was able to cut through my my solidified walls and go all right one more you can you can get on my boat i've got critical role i've got adventure zone now i've got dungeons and daddies and it's it's very funny so i would i would recommend you give it a listen if you're looking for a new uh dnd podcast to listen to especially one that isn't five thousand hours long like critical role or indeed a couple hundred episodes long like the adventure zone this one is about 40 episodes in. By my guess, they do an episode once every like two weeks and they started last January. So it's still very young and it's it's easily consumed because the episodes rarely go over an hour long. So if, if you're looking for a, a fun D&D podcast, that's a real play D&D podcast that actually has the added benefit of the players sitting at the same ta- table and having those interactions, at least in the beginning. Um, I haven't heard all the episodes yet, so I don't know if they were able to maintain that through um, the world exploding. But that is um, those are those are some some good bonus points. I think it's got going for it because that's one of the, the daunting things about the Adventure Zone or about Critical Role. Um, like the uh, Adventure Zone balances like sixty-nine episodes. That's going to take you a while. critical role you know season one's 115 episodes each episode's a minimum of three hours we're over 100 episodes into season two at minimum episodes of three hours like that's a lot of media to consume and it's intimidating it's why i'm never gonna watch one piece because the shit's just fucking long as hell but we're we're under 50 episodes for dungeons and daddies it's still very new it's still very fun it's still very fresh so i would recommend it let's move on to the next thing in podcast Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the Going Up cast. As I've mentioned a couple of times, I very much expect there to not be any breaks uh, between episodes of the podcast or chapters of Brisinger, uh throughout this week while I am unpacking. I've, I've set it up so the internet will show up like same day as initial move-in day, so I'm hopeful, but uh, if anything does shatter and I somehow manage to get a hold of internet to communicate to you guys uh, keep an eye out on um, Instagram at the going upcast or on uh, uh, Twitter at the going cast or on Facebook at going upcast um, and for for updates but I will I will do my best to make sure that there is no gap in in content uh, I'm very excited today as I'm recording this is a uh, Sunday which makes this one of the last things I'm gonna record in my current uh, location and I'm going to uh, finish up the packing today and ensure that everything is all set and ready to go i hope you all have a wonderful week um happy august i just noticed uh that it's now august um and i hope you're all staying safe and i will see you throughout this week with brissinger chapters if all goes well and i'll see you next week for another brand new episode of the going upcast have a good one everyone